Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. If you've ever been sucked into the world of Tudor England, whether by Wolf Hall, The Tudors, or one of the many Boleyn novels, you've likely met Hans Holbein. Born in 1497, he learned to paint from his father, Hans Holbein the Elder, and went on to become one of, if not the, finest portraitists of the first half of the 16th century. Now, the first major show dedicated to the artist has come to the United States, first at the Getty in Los Angeles, and now in New York City at the Morgan Library and Museum. Holbein, capturing character, spans his entire career and all the media he worked in, oils and jewelry and prints and books. And today, I'm taking you along on an audio tour of some key pieces in the show with Ostea Mazzgalette, the Annette and Oscar de la Renta assistant curator at the Morgan, one of the co-curators of this show. Thanks for chatting with me, Ostea. Always happy to talk anything Holbein-related. So, what makes him so special, and why is it so rare to see all of these pieces together like this? Holbein is one of those artists that really truly has never gone out of fashion in the history of Western European art. And I think um, the reason that he is so exceptional is truly his incredible facility with the medium of oil paint and his control of the medium in everything he does. Um, Holbein is also remarkable in just in a kind of variety of media that he worked with. We know him mostly as a portraitist. Certainly that's how you know, he's usually presented to audiences in the United States, but he was also a brilliant designer of prints, designer of jewels, a remarkable, remarkable draftsman too. Um, and someone whose career, you know, coincided with some of the most turbulent moments in European history in the 16th century. Today, uh, we think that we live through very, very complicated times, but I think the early 1530s, the late 1520s, were as if not more complicated. You know, this is the moment when the very basis of European culture is challenged and transformed through the emergence of Protestantism and challenges to the kind of um, traditional Christian worldview. And Holbein is someone who worked closely with many of the people directly involved in these debates at the time. Erasmus of Rotterdam, of course, Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell, King Henry VIII. So it's his proximity to these figures and his ability to bring them to life to us today that makes him really a singular portraitist in the um, kind of 16th century European context. Well, let's go meet some of these men then. So here we are in front of a very small oil painting of Erasmus of Rotterdam. I think for such a celebrity of the time, I would have expected a bigger, grander, maybe four-foot portrait and not this wee little thing that could fit in my hand. So, I mean, you're definitely right. This is a very, very small, very intimate image. Certainly larger portraits of Erasmus exist. Um, 
in the Louvre. Um, there is a great, great example in England in a private collection um, that still survives today. However, we wanted to show this small, very intimate portrait because it's a very important aspect of how Erasmus's image was disseminated and how it traveled in 16th century Europe. So this tiny round portrait is actually something we call a capsule portrait. It's not really meant to be put on the wall and displayed in this way. It's something that's supposed to be kind of portable. It would have had a lid or another portrait that kind of you can combine them together in a kind of little capsule and they would have been kind of portable objects that, you know, perhaps Erasmus would have sent to his friends or followers to keep in their study. And it's a kind of object that's activated through the act of opening it and being held in a palm of your hand and you have this very close one-to-one encounter with a sitter. And in this case, the sitter, of course, is the most famous man in terms of, you know, scholars and artists and writers in Europe at this time. He's a theologian, he's a humanist, he's a writer whose words are disseminated across the European continent through a relatively recently invented medium of the printing press. Actually, in the early 1520s, Erasmus moves to the city of Basel specifically in order to work there with a specific printer, Johannes Froben, because Basel was the center of book trade. It was in Basel that Erasmus met Holbein, who also migrated there from Germany earlier. And it's through this meeting of the two men that the image of Erasmus that we know today was created. Erasmus is fascinating because, of course, he's someone who engages with the, in, in this humanist debate about the power of words versus images. Very often in his writings, you'll see this trope that, you know, a, that a portrait, a painted portrait, it's, it's very, very limited in how it can convey character or personality. And if you want to know someone well, you have to read their writings first. However, it's sort of ironic that Erasmus was, you know, really, I think we can say, obsessed with the visual image, with his own image, and worked with some of the greatest artists of the European Renaissance, Holbein, Quentin Metzeis, Albrecht Dürer, in order to create and then disseminate his portrait to his friends and followers and admirers. One of the things that excites me about this show is that we do have Holbein's other media here. So let's go over to the books because he did this beautiful series of little skeletons dancing around. Yes, let's, let's go. So Holbein's Dance of Death is this series of 40 tiny um, woodcuts that he produced around 1526 in collaboration with a man called Hans Lutzelberger. A lot of people in this exhibition are called Hans, so that's sort of this, this is the meeting of two Hanses. Um, so Holbein designed this series, but Hans Lutzelberger was the one 
who cut them inward. And, and, and the creation of these really complex images really required the meeting of these two men. You needed kind of Holbein's ability to create these very, very lively scenes to interpret this medieval idea of the dance of death in this kind of complex narrative way. But then you also needed someone who was skilled enough to you know, do the actual labor of cutting the wood panels themselves. And what's fascinating, although you know, we think now of this as a kind of as work of Holbein, he's not the one who signed this series. It was the woodcutter who was kind of seen as the primary, perhaps, author of this work. And this is a pretty common thing to see around this time, too death sort of interfering in the lives of everyday people. I mean, what, what is the point of this macabre, you know, little series? I think when we think about this moment, sort of 15th, 16th century in Europe, we have to remember that death was all around. Sometimes we get asked, like, oh, did this coincide with a specific plague? But it's like there were so many plagues and there were so many, all, you know, wars and disasters in Europe at this time that there was just a constant, a kind of constant awareness of the brevity of one's life and the fact that, you know, death can come at any time. So you better, you know, don't live in sin because you don't know when you're going to die. But also it reminds us that death is this great equalizer. And so very, very often in this imagery, and this is particularly the case with Holbein, um, there is a lot of social satire too, where, you know, this is the only time when you can kind of show um, members of the clergy, the Pope, even the king, receiving the same treatment as your regular, you know, peasant or peasant woman. You know, we're standing here right in front um, this one frame with... 10 small engravings, and we see, for example, a merchant or perhaps a moneylender who is surrounded by his coins and very, very alarmed as he encounters the skeleton who, f who steals his money and then eventually will steal his soul. We see death at sea. But then, of course, there are these more humorous moments. Uh, we see a nun praying in front of a little triptych and she is looking back at a, at a man who is kind of playing to her but perhaps in a seductive way um, and death comes right at this moment when she's being seduced and perhaps thinking, you know, inappropriate thoughts that would have been inappropriate for a nun to think. In some other cases, however, death meets people when they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. You see the parish priest going through the city together with his parishioners, and death leads the way. This strikes me as very religious, I think, in a way that Holbein's other work isn't, once he meets your Erasmus, your Moors, your others. Is that true or is the relationship between, you know, the Reformation, Holbein, and Catholicism a little more complicated? It's complicated because um, Holbein is an artist who doesn't really write much. He, all we have from him are his paintings. So we don't actually know what his religious views are. 
And this particular cycle has actually certainly been adopted even throughout the 16th century in both Catholic and Protestant publications. So there's a degree of ambiguity in this imagery that different people with different religious beliefs would have accepted. And certainly to me, it aligns closely with how I understand Holbein as an artist who is um, not really interested in making these big statements about religion, about the state of the world. You know, after all, he paints both Thomas More and Thomas Cromwell within a very short period of years. He is someone who is interested in practicing his art, is certainly interested in getting paid for practicing his art. So I think we live in, in a society where things feel so fractured. It can be, you know, different sides are not speaking with each other. And so it's difficult for us to think of someone like Holbein, who certainly could have, you know, inhabited these different spheres at the same time. And ultimately, you know, it was his skill as an artist, which was so admired, that would have allowed him to kind of move among these different audiences at this very turbulent moment. Well, so let's go visit the most famous man in the show, Sir Thomas More, who did write a lot and was very clear on what he believed. Absolutely. We jumped from the European continent proper to the British Isles. We jumped and also Holbein jumped with us. Um, in the mid-1520s, he becomes a kind of increasingly interested in looking for work outside of Basel. First, he goes to France to try to, um, you know, become a painter for Francis I. That doesn't really go well. And um, a few years later, Erasmus actually um, kind of writes a letter um, to his friend Thomas More, introducing Holbein to him. And with this letter, Holbein travels from Basel through the Netherlands to England, um, where he meets Moore, stays in Moore's house in Chelsea, and through Moore, surely gains access to you know, his first kind of group of important patrons in England. This portrait, to me, is a portrait that shows, for the first time, Holbein doing something that he in a way, never did before. It's a portrait that's meant to impress, and it's a really a portrait that shows all of kind of Holbein's promise at this moment of time. It presents to us Sir Thomas More in a three-quarter view with a green curtain and a gorgeously painted rope hanging right behind him, creating this fully executed pictorial space. In this painting, we meet Moore in 1527, and that's the moment when he's about to ascend to the top, top echelon of English society. He's about to become Lord Chancellor, which is the highest office in Tudor England at this time. As we all know, you know, Moore was a great scholar. However, in this portrait, he's not presenting himself as a scholar, as someone who wrote, you know, the great utopia, which we're showing um, next to him. He's presenting himself as, I would say, a kind of a courtier, a court official. 
one of the ways in which this is communicated is, of course, through this incredible chain that's done in gold and it's so, so shiny. And the chain has the Tudor rose at the center. It's often been proposed, and I think it's highly likely that this chain would have been given to Thomas More by Henry VIII himself. The rest of the painting is a bravura performance in terms of the handling of oil paint for depiction of a variety of media. Um, there is, you know, this wonderful stubble um, <laughs> that Thomas More has that's just kind of so, so tactile. Um, of course, the beautifully rendered fur trim of the coat, and then the sleeves, right? The sleeves that just seem like they are on fire. And there is a freedom there that is not something that we always associate, you know, with Holbein's painting. He's generally much more controlled. You know, whenever I'm in the gallery alone waiting for visitors or anything like that, I just come here and I look at these sleeves. <laughs> Those sleeves are incredibly famous, possibly illegal, as has famously been said. But I will say I never really noticed the stubble before I saw this in person. And that's equally impressive, I think, if a little more mundane. <laughs> yes. Um, Hilary Mantel has written a small piece about this specific painting where she talks about, you know, how you, Thomas More, did not shave clearly before sitting for Holbein, which is, a, which is an interesting idea. But we'll see a fair amount of stubble in other paintings by Holbein, too. I think what's so interesting, too, is you talked about his presentation of himself, not as a scholar, but as a, a courtier, as someone who's very powerful. I think that gets at the pun in the title of the show, which is capturing character, which can be either the character of a person or, you know, the character they're presenting yeah, so I think that's exactly what we're trying to get. I think, um, you know, modern day viewers, when they see the title capturing character, um, they sort of think about personality or, you know, like, what is he thinking? What, what, what mood is he in? That's certainly not how character or identity functioned for, the, for Holbein and his sitters. So much of what... Holbein and his sitters were trying to do is a kind of, they worked closely together, I, I think, in order to kind of define um, an identity that they were interested in projecting outward. Holbein is someone who is, I think, very responsive to what his sitters actually needed. It's capturing status, it's your family lineage, it's your relationship to the king, it's your relationship to the court, the future of your dynasty, all of these things. So I know Cromwell's not in the show, but he did become Holbein's patron, very famously in Wolf Hall and in real life. <laughs> um, but um, what's so interesting, I think, is we tend to think of Holbein as being a really accurate painter of like capturing the likeness of someone. But some paintings we know of, like the Anne of Cleves portrait, were not exactly accurate and may or may not have led to, you know, some people getting executed. <laughs> so um, how accurate was it? Do we know based on drawings and the resulting paintings? It's a complicated thing. Um, I would say 
that the way I understand Holbein is that it's kind of controlled manipulation under the guises of extreme naturalism. Um, we have to be, I mean, Holbein's paintings certainly try to convey to us that they are showing exactly what's in front of him. You know, in some of the paintings in the show, you see tiny pins, you see little scars, you see kind of little creases, and you, your mind goes like, oh, you know, he is so realistic. But actually, so much of it is about what his sitters wanted to convey. Actually, Richard Southerl is a really great example. In this exhibition, we start with the first great, great portrait is Thomas More, and the last great, great portrait is Richard Southerl, a man who was implicated in the death of Thomas More. He's actually someone who, who was a witness in More's trial. He's one of the... Um, most important advisors to Henry VIII at the end of his reign, and one of few people who never really fell out of favor. He actually, you know, survived Henry VIII and later worked with his daughters, Mary and um, Elizabeth I. What fascinates me about this portrait are these scars that you see here on his neck and also in his forehead. They kind of look like hickeys. <laughs> they, I mean, we don't exactly know what they are. I mean, some kind of lesions, scars, I mean, hickeys, I guess. <laughs> but it's fascinating because they are so prominent. You know, he could have easily asked the sitter to turn the other way, right? And those side scars would not have been visible then. But also note that the scars are exactly aligned with this inscription. So it's something that your eye goes to directly. So, you know, I don't buy this argument that this is just Holbein being very realistic and telling us what he's seeing. You know, it seems that the scars are very specific and something that Richard Southerl would have wanted included in this portrait. One of the theories about the origin of these scars is that actually they are the scars that Richard Southerl gained when he was in a sword battle in order to defend the honor of Anne Boleyn. This was a battle in the early 1530s, a few years before this portrait was painted uh, with a man called William Pennington. You know, long story short, William Pennington dies. We know from court records, Richard Southerl is injured and sort of has to, you know, flee because he killed a man. But Henry VIII, you know, marries Anne Boleyn very, very shortly after this duel. And eventually Savile comes back and, you know, starts occupying increasingly important courtly positions. So there is a way to think about this portrait, I think, with these scars as signs of allegiance to the king. We need to get someone who is like a trauma surgeon here so that they could tell us whether these scars 
are truly the kind of scars that, you know, a sword fight could leave. And could you even survive if you get hit on your neck here? But, but I, that, that theory of the fight appeals to me strongly, especially because this painting also has another kind of unusual aspect, and that's the date. So there's this beautiful gold inscription and Roman letters and... Many, many of Holbein's portraits are dated, but this specific one is dated not to calendar year, like, you know, it would be 1536, but to the regnal year of Henry VIII. So you see H8, Henry VIII, 28. So, you know, the 28th year of Henry VIII's rule. So it really, really speaks you know, to his relationship with the king, I think, quite intensely. And also then we have um, this chain, I think, chain of knighthood. So all of these things together should make us reconsider uh, what we think of as realism in Holbein's portraits, because so much of it has to do with the fact that these are very, very public images. And I think, too, the imperfections are kind of a way to hide maybe the other more overt concealments, the other things you're taking away, maybe like Simon George's double chin. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, In this case, we also um, have the preparatory drawing for the sitter, for Richard Savile. And in that case, it's interesting that the scars already appear at the stage of the drawing, too. Um, but I think it's exactly that. It's, it's sort of this process of emphasizing certain things, taking away other things. But Holbein's textures, his understanding of color, you know, the kind of luminosity and the light that he achieves in his, in his paintings, all of this, I think, kind of seduces us into thinking that, yes, we're standing and looking at this man exactly how he was at this moment in time. Let's go look at the most seductive painting, perhaps. (laughs) Simon George. So we can actually see the preparatory drawing just to the right of the beautiful round frame. And I gotta say, he had some work done between the two. I think that's uh, been the consensus. (laughs) I should just say, you know, it's always extremely instructive to look at Holbein's portrait drawings in relation to surviving portraits. In this exhibition, we are lucky to be able to reunite these two works, which are currently in different European collections. The painting is at the Städel Museum in Frankfurt. The drawing is in the collection of Her Majesty the Queen in England. And, you know, Holbein, we know, was someone who virtually always started by making a drawing. During his second stay in England um, in the 1530s, his way of drawing follows like a very kind of prescribed system. Um, He always starts with this pinkish paper that allows him to kind of approximate the skin tone of his white European sitters. Then he uses color chalks, he uses a tiny bit of washes, and he uses a fair amount of pen and black ink to describe usually the features and the outlines of faces. You know, we know, I should say, we know for a fact that this drawing was used in the making of this work. So the outlines of that sheet were incised on the panel to make this painting, but then the man was kind of, yeah, dressed up 
in significant ways. The thing that you notice most immediately is the beard that has grown <laughs> significantly. Um, in the drawing, Simon George has his mustache and a very kind of, and basically a stubble. Um, and here he has this very voluminous, beautifully painted beard in the final painting. Why did that happen? I mean, you know, we can say certainly um, by the late 1530s, I think tastes in the court have changed a little and a beard would have been appropriate and fashionable. And, you know, when you look at Simon George, we don't know much about him, but we know that he cared about fashion very much. I mean, he's dressed in the most of-the-moment items. However, there is a, perhaps a sense of concealment that also goes on. Um, someone recently pointed out to me, too, that in the drawing, um, you also kind of have a sense of a bald spot, uh, perhaps, that's hidden away and painted over in the finished painting. I mean, his nose seems a little different, kind of pointing slightly up. So, yes, you know, I, I think it's extremely instructive to compare, to compare the two. And at the same time, of course, when we look at Simon George, when we just look at the painting, I mean, it seems so realistic. So, yeah, we are seduced. Certainly. I think I want to talk about the jewelry and maybe our portrait of a woman over there. So our first lady... Actually, a good number of ladies in this show. The, it, the problem with the ladies is that so often they are not identified. You know, these men, Richard Southerl, Thomas More, they have been part of our knowledge of Holbein's work from the moment when that these paintings were made, and their identities have never been lost. While for female sitters, we know that they were important, they were rich, to be able to afford these paintings. But in the last 500 years, their identities have just not been preserved in the same way. And it's a kind of, the, the way I think about identity of Holbein sitters is almost like the spectrum, right? Like on the one hand, you have someone like Thomas More. On the other hand, you have all of these unidentified sitters that are painted in as careful way, in as an opulent way, but, you know, because we don't know who they are, in a way, our interpretation of these portraits can't often go as far. Or it can go further. I think this one, the portrait of a woman, possibly from the Cromwell family, was imagined by Hilary Mantel to be, I think, rape. I think it was Raph. Yeah, I think Raph Sadler's wife. Yeah. yeah, so in a way, in, you know, in creative work, I guess it does, it does open a range of possibilities. Um, but this is you know, one of the largest portraits in the show. It's from an American collection from the Toledo Art Museum in Ohio. She's young. Holbein tells us she's 21 years old when this painting is done, wearing this very fashionable French hood and uh, with beautiful embroidery and black work all around her dress. Um, she's wearing a fascinating and very, very prominent jewel. At the center of the jewel, there is a woman who looks back 
and that's the wife of Lot, who looks back as she's fleeing the burning Sodoma. And this moment when she's becoming a pillar of salt is shown through a jewel, like she is made into some kind of beautiful black stone. What's really interesting about this jewel is that this is the only instance among all of Holbein's portraits that we have the jewel and a drawing of a jewel by Holbein in his jewelry book. So um, right next to the painting in the exhibition, we are showing the small little drawing from the British Museum, you know, that actually has the biblical verse incised, and it's exactly the same composition. And so, you know, this raises a lot of questions. Did Holbein design this jewel? and a goldsmith made it, and then he portrayed her with it. Did, he, did she have a jewel that Holbein just kind of made a sketch of to then include in her portrait? Or is it an imaginary piece altogether? Did she relate to this religious story in a very close way and wanted something like this included in her portrait? I think it really speaks to that line between reality and fiction that we've seen in pretty much everything we've looked at. I mean, that, that is the line that goes throughout Holbein's career. He is someone who didn't write much. He didn't express his own views. We really only have the works. And so it's really kind of up to us to see on which side of that line we find ourselves as viewers. We have links in the show notes to the online exhibition page for the Morgan Library's show, Holbein Capturing Character, where you can do a virtual tour of the galleries if you can't jog up to New York in person. The show itself runs through May 15th, so you still have some time. After that, Holbein's painting of Sir Thomas More will return to the Frick Collection, where it'll be reunited with its antagonist, Thomas Cromwell. Penelope Rollins has the story of how this epic stare down across a Manhattan fireplace came to be. Check it out on our website, theamericanscholar.org. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm-hmm.